welcome back to The Bunker Daily. I'm Naomi Smith. It's been quite a month in Northern Irish politics. A few weeks ago, we saw rising tensions across Ulster with violence rippling around the country. Most of the protagonists appeared to be teenagers from loyalist communities with police officers injured and even targeted with bombs. Brexit was cited as one reason for the unrest, with Boris Johnson saying he will try to, quote, sandpaper the checks introduced under the protocol that he signed with the EU. To add to this, the DUP has been plunged into a leadership contest, with Arlene Foster announcing her resignation as leader of the party and as First Minister of Northern Ireland. And by the time this recording goes out, the DUP will probably have new leadership. And finally, a recent poll for the BBC Spotlight programme found a majority of people on both sides of the Irish border believe Northern Ireland will leave the UK within the next 25 years. To talk about all of this, I am delighted to be joined by my namesake, a hero of Northern Irish politics, Naomi Long, Minister of Justice on the Northern Ireland Executive, leader of the Alliance Party and Assembly Member for East Belfast. So this is very much two Naomi's, one podcast. And no, I will not be doing my Arling Foster impression today. As well as her current experience, Naomi is the only active politician in Northern Ireland to have served in every elected position, having previously served as a city councillor, Lord Mayor, MP and MEP. It's pretty exhausting just to read that, let alone do it. So hello, Naomi. Welcome to the show. And how, how exhausted are you? <laughs> well, um, not too bad, actually. I had a good night's sleep and that usually that usually rectifies most things. So, yeah, I'm keeping well. So from the news coverage we received on this side of the Irish Sea, the weeks of, of violence uh, last month in Northern Ireland kind of felt quite momentous. How did, how did the situation feel on the ground for you? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, it was a very complex situation in that it wasn't simply about the protocol, though that has kind of been one of the big issues that has risen to the surface. But there has been kind of bubbling tensions within loyalism now for some time. Um, disgruntlement at how they are represented, I guess, in terms of the effectiveness of their representation in the Assembly. Frustration, I think, that Boris promised one thing and delivered something quite different. Boris, um, really? Mm. Well, indeed, indeed. And I think people understandably feel that they have been really let down. Um, I suppose the folly is in believing Boris in the first place. But nevertheless, people do feel, um, those who did put their faith in him, now feel that, you know, they have been really let down and they feel very angry at that. I think there's also been... I suppose, increasing tensions because since Brexit, there's been increasing talk of a united Ireland about what that might look like, about when there might be a poll. And so all of those things are ongoing on the ground and I think have been quite unsettling for people. And what we found then from last year was that we had some tensions around prosecutions to do with um, COVID regulations, which sounds like quite a mundane issue, but it involved the Deputy First Minister, it involved Sinn Féin, it involved a high-profile IRA man um, and his funeral. And so the fact that the prosecutions weren't possible in that case really ignited a lot of anger within loyalism who felt that there was one rule for Sinn Féin and another rule for the rest of us. So I think there was a conflation of issues that just raised the tension um, exponentially and led to the kind of violence we've seen. 
And it wasn't it wasn't just Belfast, was it? I mean, it, some people sort of you know report that over here, old tensions in Belfast tonight, because you know that was where we saw you know scenes of a hijacked bus going up in flames and things like that. But it, as I understand it, it was it, it didn't even start in Belfast, did it? No, it was much more widespread than that. Um, the, the the reason that I suppose it became so concerning was because when it arrived in Belfast, given how tightly packed the city is, given the number of so-called peace lines, dividing walls, dividing lines that run through the city between communities, there was a real tension as the violence moved more more, um, approximate to those interface areas. And so there was a risk of that spilling over into sectarian violence. And so I suppose that's why those really captured people's imagination and, and captured people's attention. And there was genuine fear, I think, that things would spill over and become much more difficult. Things have calmed since. So I think that's the first and most important thing. Things are much more settled than they were. But I don't think it would be right for us to assume that because things are quieter right now, that all of the frustrations, the anger and the tensions within loyalism have dissipated. That's not the case. I think people still are upset and annoyed. And it was interesting that they interviewed one young man who was involved, not in the rioting, but actually got involved to try and uh, and get a friend out of trouble, ended up um, being arrested. And they interviewed him and he said, you know, I don't know the detail of the protocol. I don't know the ins and outs of the COVID regulations, but I keep hearing from my leaders in my community, our politicians, that we're losing and Sinn Féin are winning. And that makes me angry. And so I think there's a political element so it's good that it's, it, it seems to have, have quietened down, but of course we're, we're getting close again to some uh, annual tense moments around the 12th of July and then, you know, marching season and, and, and other events in August. But, but you did just sort of touch on this young man who, who said, you know, I don't really understand the protocol, I don't really understand COVID restrictions, etc. So let, let's just talk about the protocol a bit. Johnson, as I said at the top of the show, has said he wants to sandpaper the protocol in order to cut checks. But earlier this year, he sort of flatly denied that there were any checks. How how much damage is he doing by not being honest with the people of Northern Ireland? We haven't heard a huge amount from him, actually, uh, during all of this, have we? Well, I mean, I think that his insensitivity to the complexities of Northern Ireland have been at the bottom of much of the difficulty that we're facing right now. It isn't solely Boris, I have to say. I would say in general, Westminster politics are slightly indifferent to the realities of Northern Ireland, or at least if they think they understand it, they don't have a comprehensive understanding of those sensitivities. We tried to raise this issue before Brexit because we recognised that any new frictions, any new tensions, any new borders or boundaries were going to really impact on people's sense of confidence and identity in Northern Ireland in a way that they wouldn't necessarily in other parts of the UK. And we raised this repeatedly with government. They heard us loud and clear when it came to the Irish border. That was a very obvious one from a practical point of view. It was going to be very difficult to manage. It's 300 miles long, almost 300 crossings. So it was going to be almost impossible to manage that as a frontier. But they didn't hear I don't think when we were talking to them that the Irish sea border would be just as contentious amongst loyalists. I think that that's been a fundamental misunderstanding on behalf of the government. And I suppose the the dishonesty 
the fact that one thing is promised and another is delivered. You know, Boris talks about his oven-ready deal. It didn't surprise me that it was a turkey, but some people seem to think he could do better. And, you know, we have been realistic about Brexit and what it would mean. It would mean disruption. It would mean friction. It would mean certain things we wouldn't have access to. And that was irrespective of the protocol. I mean, if the protocol was to go tomorrow, there would be other things, other impacts that we're not feeling today because the protocol protects us. I'd love to get your view on that because as we're recording this today, I think the Taoiseach and the Prime Minister are are meeting or or about to meet. Um, We know that the UK is going to be bringing in more checks in October when the the grace period ends. You know, there have been some export checks already, but we haven't seen much in the way of import checks being implemented yet. So with all of that in mind, can the protocol be improved or does it need to be replaced with something else? And if it can be improved, what sorts of improvements would, would you and the Alliance Party be looking to see in that? Well, I think it can be improved. And I think it's like any international treaty. I mean, there's virtually never been an international treaty that hasn't been tweaked after the event and where there hasn't been some change made in respect of just the experience of operating it at a practical level. So, I mean, I do think it can be changed. I think the difficulty, of course, is that the UK government, when they seek change, are not willing to work with the EU as equal partners in trying to find that change. I think the EU have been slow to respond, and that's always a difficulty within the EU because you're dealing with 27 different member states. So trying to get them to coalesce around agreeing changes is, is slow. And so what we've ended up with is the UK government unilaterally announcing changes. Now, I mean, that was seen by Europe as an act of bad faith. And it's very difficult to negotiate long-term improvements when the people you're negotiating with no longer trust you as a partner. So I think part of the issue is that with some of the announcements that were made earlier this year unilaterally by the government, they've squandered some of their negotiating capital with Europe in terms of being able to deal with the protocol. Because I think that there are solutions. For example, we would like to see a full veterinary agreement between the UK and the EU. That would negate probably 70 to 80% of the checks. It covers lots of things. It covers, it would cover livestock. It would cover things like chilled foods. Um, it would cover, so sort of produce, um, fresh produce. It would cover animals and it would also cover plants and soil and those sorts of issues that have been problematic. So it would cover a lot of the issues that are really affecting people in Northern Ireland without any real risk to the single market. And that's the key because I understand and I'm not in denial about the fact that the single market has to be protected from an EU perspective. But there are things that I think can be changed in order to make the protocol work better and in order to allow it to be more proportionate. I think around 70% of the checks of goods entering the single market are now happening at the GB Northern Ireland interface. Now that doesn't seem proportionate, I have to say, But we also have to take account of the fact that government have chosen a particular kind of Brexit. They were supported and not by the DUP. They wouldn't choose one that was better aligned with the EU. They actually abandoned the idea of a veterinary agreement during the negotiations. And it's those choices that have led us to the position we're in. So whilst the government point the finger at the EU, there is a lot of responsibility with the government in terms of not actually having pursued the kind of Brexit that would make things easier rather than harder in Northern Ireland. I think Theresa May understood and got that very much. 
And we could see that she was moving towards a much more soft Brexit um, after her visits to Northern Ireland. I don't think Boris ever really listened to Northern Ireland as a collective. He listened to the DUP and their their views are just not representative, not even of all of unionism, but certainly not of everyone in Northern Ireland. Um, and I think that that's where the problem ultimately lies. I mean, I've always sort of talked about the conflict in Northern Ireland as being frozen rather than resolved. Um, and a BBC Spotlight poll in April said that 76, I think, percent of people in Northern Ireland and 87 percent in the Republic of Ireland agreed with the statement that the dispute over Northern Ireland status remains unresolved and there's still potential violence in the future, a potential for violence in the future. I mean, that, that that's worrying that that's how, how people feel. Now, polls are a snapshot that was done in April when tensions were much higher and, and we were seeing pockets of violence erupting. But, you know, another aspect of the poll did cover the likelihood of Northern Ireland leaving the UK. Um, And I think it was 51% uh, of people in the North and 54% of those in the Republic thinking that it will happen within 25 years. Tell us about that. I mean, I'm sure you get asked about this almost every time anyone uh, on this side of the Irish Sea interviews you, but but what, what would need to happen for a border poll to come about? How likely do you think it is? How likely do you think it is that that poll would result in a United Ireland? Well, I think the first thing to say is that in terms of the Alliance Party, we take a completely neutral position when it comes to um, the constitutional question. So we don't take a position on Irish unity or, or on remaining within the UK. We focus on trying to build a united community in Northern Ireland because ultimately the biggest risk to our peace and stability here are the community tensions and divisions within Northern Ireland. And so that our focus is on trying to bring people together, learning to live together peacefully, but also learning to accept and celebrate the differences between us rather than seeing them as a point of division. I believe that's the way that stability lies. And I believe when you have a united community that can live together, then you're in a much better place to discuss the long-term future. Because, you know, if you move the border, it doesn't, mean that the community here changes. We're still the same people with the same issues, the same tensions, the same problems. It just transfers responsibility for dealing with them to a different government. So from my point of view, I think it's really important that we don't overegg the, the potential of Irish unity to resolve all of our issues. At the same time, undoubtedly, Brexit caused a shift in terms of people's perspective. I think there were people who previously would have been, I suppose you would describe them as pragmatic unionists. They were happy with the status quo. They weren't going to initiate or press for change. But for them, Brexit was a real challenge to their identity as a European citizen. And they feel uncomfortable with that. And we have noticed that even within our own party membership, that people who personally might have been reasonably okay um, within the union are now asking questions about what Irish unity might mean, how it might work, what it would look like. And I think that is reflected more widely in society. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're suddenly going to have a run of people saying, well, I used to vote DUP and of course now I I want a a United Ireland. That's not going to happen. But you're going to get people in that central kind of bit of politics where people's views are much more softer, much more malleable, much more influenced actually by conditions rather than history that are open to listen to the argument in a way that perhaps they wouldn't have been so open before. So I don't think it's as simple as saying there'll be a United Ireland at a certain point or there's bound to be a border poll by a certain point. But I would put it like this. 
I grew up during the Troubles. I was born in 1971. So my entire life was lived with that as the backdrop until 1998. As it stands now, I think it is more likely than it was at any time before this point that there will be a United Ireland in my lifetime. That doesn't mean I think that it is a certainty or a likelihood, but I do think the probability of it has increased. And I think Brexit it definitely has increased. And I think Brexit has been a driver in that. The Alliance Party, your party, has seen um, poll bounces recently. There was a recent survey giving you 18% and you were, you know, snapping hot on the heels, therefore, of the DUP. So there seems to be a bigger appetite for non-sectarian politics today. And tell us why you think that is. And also, you know, going into next year's assembly elections, um, what sort of message you and the Alliance Party are looking to put forward to voters? Well, I suppose um, what Alliance is putting forward is a kind of progressive and positive form of politics. We are not constantly defining ourselves by what we are not, but we're defining ourselves positively um, as a broadly liberal party, one that is, in terms of our commitments, we are committed to equality, human rights, um, the rule of law. All these things sound terribly basic, but actually at the moment, I think are under challenge right across the UK and indeed further afield. So they're no longer taken for granted in political parties. I think a lot of young people particularly who you know, want to be able to live their lives the way they want, want to be able to make their own choices as adults and are tired of the very kind of regressive and backward looking politics in Northern Ireland are attracted by the fact that what we want to do is create a more liberal and tolerant society, a more open society um, and one where people can live free of intimidation and fear because of their religion, the, the, the colour of their skin, their sexuality, their gender, um, having a disability or whatever it might be. And so I think that inclusive politics that we have been promoting is very is, is something that's very much welcomed um, by young people who perhaps have not lived throughout the troubles and don't see their politics defined around those issues, but are concerned about the global issues, things like climate change, things like COVID and the recovery, and whether that will be a just recovery. So those are the sorts of issues that are driving politics in terms of the future and those are the issues that Alliance is driving forward as a party. I think it's also because for a lot of other people there is this issue about parties who constantly see everything in politics in Northern Ireland through the lens of whether it's good for United Ireland or good for for the union and actually often we lose out on what is good for Northern Ireland so if you look at the protocol for example you hear a lot about shortages of goods and what can't get to Northern Ireland and other things but you know there are benefits of the protocol there are positives we in Northern Ireland have unfettered access it's the only truth that Boris told and we have unfettered access to the UK market We have unfettered access to the EU market. We should be out there selling Northern Ireland as a place to locate logistics businesses, as a place to do production. Because if you make your goods and sell your goods from Northern Ireland, you have unfettered access right across the full marketplace. And you don't get that in GB. You don't get that in GB. And you don't get that in the EU. So we're in a unique position and we're not exploiting it because we're divided over it. And I suppose the point that we're trying to make is as a community, we are stronger if we pull together in the same direction. And that should be what matters for the young people and for the rest of our society as we move forward. 
Well, when you were describing the Alliance Party, I was just willing that you'd run candidates in uh, GB because, <laughs> my goodness, I'd like to be able to vote for that kind of party. But now, you maybe you just convinced me that I just need to move back to Northern Ireland and make the most of all of that amazing, unfettered access. Uh, Naomi Long, thank you so much for joining us on The Bunker today. You've held almost every post it's possible to hold in Northern Ireland. So, last question, what's still on your career bucket list? I've never had a career bucket list, if I'm I honest. Don't believe um, you. <laughs> I don't I'm, I'm I've managed to collect everything without actually ever having any ambition to do any of it because I was actually a civil engineer and kind of accidentally got involved in politics, which is probably a different podcast. But um, I suppose for me, my ambition really has been for Northern Ireland. So I would like to see Alliance break through in the next assembly election, whether it be in the autumn or next year as it's scheduled. I would like to see us be the first, second, third largest party because I think then we will have broken the idea that this place has to be binary, that it has to be unionist versus nationalist forever. We will prove the point that being the third party or the second party or even the first party um, doesn't require you to stick a label on yourself forever as unionist or nationalist. And I think when we break through that gap, when we break that ceiling, then we can justifiably say um, that we need to start looking at things through a very different perspective than the one we currently do. So that's my ambition on my bucket list. It's not one for me. It's one for the party and for Northern Ireland. Yeah, it sounds like a pitch for First Minister to me, Naomi. Thank you so so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Thank you. And listeners, remember there's a new bunker daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday with the main panel show on Tuesdays and our sibling podcast, Oh God, What Now? on Fridays. Don't forget you can back the bunker on Patreon. Just search Bunker Patreon Podcast to find out more. Do subscribe, tell your friends and if you have a spare moment, give us a nice positive review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jake Barshbold and Yelena Sofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. 